you're listening to the City World Radio Network, high-definition digital radio broadcasting from the city to the world, www.cityworldradio.com. City World Radio. This is Better Days, a positive approach to life. This evening, we're going to have a discussion about children of alcoholics, and I have a very special guest. Her name is 
Debbie Kearns, and she is a life coach, and she has been working with friends and family and patients um, for many years on this very important and challenging topic and area in the field of therapy and also just in the field of life. Hi, Deb. Oops. Hi, Deb. Hi. Call her back. Okay. She called me. Okay. Can you go out and Hi. So this is Deb Kearns, and I just mentioned that we had a little technical problem, but now we're back. And Deb Kearns has been a uh, coach uh, working with friends and family on issues about children of alcoholics. And I'd like to introduce you. Hi, Deb. Hi. Hi, Lynn. So what, I guess, the question would be, what began you on this journey of working with people who are struggling or who have been children of alcoholics? How did that come into your, um, how did you get onto this path? Okay, well, when I was a very young woman, about 20 years old, I met an alcoholic, um, a man I fell in love with, and I didn't no, he was an alcoholic, but I also really didn't know what an alcoholic was. Mm-hmm. Um, I was not a child. I am not a child of alcoholics. There were no alcoholics in my family, and um, nor in his immediate family. But actually, at the time, I thought alcoholics were on the Bowery, which was at that time <laughs> where where the homeless people were and. Mm-hmm. Um, people who were obviously disturbed and had a drinking problem. So that was really all I knew about it. Um, I knew nothing else. And because it's so disruptive in so many ways to anyone who's closely involved with an alcoholic, that um, pretty much it's too much to handle alone for for, for anyone uh, we're you, not necessarily children of alcoholics, spouses of alcoholics, friends of alcoholics, um, employees of alcoholics, because it's such a pervasive disease. Um, it's considered a, a disease by the American Medical Association, and uh, people in the field describe it as a three-part illness, physical, spiritual, 
and emotional. That the person with the disease is in, inflicted in all those, afflicted in all those ways, and that ripples to the people involved with the alcoholic. So, yes, all of those arenas uh, touch on the people who are very close on the inner circles and on the outer circles for the alcoholic. So you fell in love with this alcoholic who, was was he your husband? Did he? Um, he he would have been my husband. Um, had his, it's a pro, also a progressive disease. Mm-hmm. So as the disease progresses, fortunately I didn't marry him. Okay. Um, but I might have otherwise. Um, but it really gets worse over time. And everything gets worse. And what happens is that um, there are three major characteristics of this disease. Well, actually four. We call it the three Ds, which are dependency, depression, and denial. Denial being the number one symptom of the disease of alcoholism. And the fourth is isolation. Those that come hand in hand with each other. They do. So maybe it would be useful for us to use, since we're using the term alcoholism, how would you define it? Not just by the symptoms, but, you know, some people say, well, you know, he's not an alcoholic. He just drinks on weekends and goes on binges. So, right. And so that, I think, has always been a kind of a tricky uh, area to figure out. What, what really describes or defines someone as an alcoholic? Right. Well, actually, um, there's a wonderful program, which unfortunately not that many people are aware of, and it's called Al-Anon. Mm-hmm. It's for families of alcoholics, sure. families or friends, anyone affected mm-hmm. by someone with a drinking problem. And what we say is that, uh, which is also, by the way, an anonymous program, uh, Al-Anon. It's anonymous. It's free. And what we say is that it's really a self-diagnosed illness. Mm. We don't have to decide. if We don't have to diagnose or determine if someone is an alcoholic. We just need to know if someone's drinking bothers us. And Even then we know that it's most likely a problem, but mm-hmm. we have a problem and we need help. I see. And basically, it's not quantifiable. You, it, you can't really say um, how much someone drinks determines whether or not they're an alcoholic. They might drink once a week. They might drink every day. They might drink from morning till night. They might only drink after work. They might drink one weekend a month or not drink for six months and then drink for a while. It's it's more the obsession mm. and how it changes their personality. So it's become, their obsession with it, their mm-hmm. determination to drink, and how it affects them. Having worked with some alcoholics, not very many, because unless they're willing, to, for me anyway, to work along with a, an AA or 12-step program, um, 
that sometimes it, without the commitment to a larger support group, it's very hard to work on a one-to-one, at least I have found. I don't know if that's been the experience that you've had. But I think uh-huh. the, the definition, that's really interesting to think about it as, in that way, that it's really in the getting in their way or getting in the way of relationships or other people's lives, uh, the other people in their lives. Uh-huh. I mean, is that what you're saying? That Yes, it is. Um, and it's, they actually say in the big book, which they use in Alcoholics Anonymous, mm-hmm. they say this disease is cunning, baffling, and insidious mm. because it tries to... Denial is its survival. Its denial is linked to its survival. In other words, mostly an alcoholic will say, I can stop drinking anytime I want. I do it all the time. <laughs> you know, it's sort of that Mark Twain joke about smoking. I've stopped a thousand times. <laughs> um, so the denial is set up to protect their need to get to the next drink. That's pretty much the the driving force in every alcoholic is to get to the next drink. So they they have to hide the fact that they really have a problem, that their life really has become unmanageable. Um, so, but then it starts to, you can see the problems that begin to grow. Uh, with this denial, and one of the things that happens, so usually every relationship fails because there's, uh, the alcoholic doesn't take responsibility, doesn't even know half the time what they've done or said when they were drinking, or what they've, or the mood they've been in when they just have to get away and go drink, or just drink with you, but a lot of blame, a lot of, well, if you weren't like that, I wouldn't have to drink, or if you hadn't done this, I wouldn't drink, or uh, any any number of excuses for their drinking to hide the fact that they have a problem. Well, I was, I was thinking that alcohol is such a an available substance, mm-hmm. and it's pervasive in every event, like every party, every event. Um, and starting very early, even I was thinking even about television and movies, how drinking and social interactions are so paired mm-hmm. that it seems quite easy for someone to just turn to alcohol as a normal social interaction. I guess the question for me is, what shifts from drinking socially, having one or two drinks, or, I mean, for me, a half a drink is enough to get me hyped, so mm-hmm. I, I can't drink. But what's the, what happens? What do you think happens to push someone into, uh, that that it's no longer within their control or within their ability to set up their own limits, that it, the alcohol is running, running the show, not themselves. Right, which is exactly what happens. The alcohol uh, 
takes on a life of its own. And what I think is that there's a predisposition, there's a genetic predisposition Mm -hmm. in that uh, alcoholics have a great capacity to drink, unlike Mm. what you're describing, where you'll feel (laughs) half a drink. Yes. Um, they're, They're known very often in high school or whenever it is, you know, kids begin to drink, they're known as the ones who can drink everyone else under the table Mm. and still drive home. Wow, that's terrifying. And seem to be okay. And people don't really know that they've had so much to drink because they can metabolize it so well. Mm. So first it's that capacity. And then I think it's used... um, but not everyone who who has that predisposition, um, although we see it uh, very prevalent in certain cultures where I think it's it's definitely passed on genetically, but also where it's used as a form of self-medication. Mm-hmm. They, it boosts confidence. You know, these are things that we, we've all experienced. They feel more relaxed. They may be the life of the party. And then it becomes... Um, a, a kind of a numb. Eventually, it's a depressant, but for a while, it it um, you know they say when somebody's had quite a bit to drink, they're feeling no pain. Right, right. And actually, if someone's been drinking, if they're in a car accident, they usually don't get as injured because their whole body is completely it's relaxed. so relaxed. Right. And it's used. It was used for dental surgery right. before there were. Um, Anesthetics and mm-hmm. painkillers, and so and and a lot of people, um, especially young people, but people of all ages, medicate with alcohol because it's so available. You don't have to go to a doctor; you just go to the uh, liquor store, and they love the way they feel. Sure, at least initially. Yeah, initially, oh. exactly. But then it really becomes; it sets up a craving. And um, they do studies on the brain where they see that when the addict thinks of a, of, a, of this, their substance of choice, part of their brain lights up. Mm-hmm. And it's at that point actually out of their hands unless they're very conscious and very determined and working very hard to stay away from it. And and I think that, you know, it's interesting the point about it being so socially acceptable because... And available. It, and available bec- and legal, right? Mm-hmm. And because legal, right. It's so obvious to us when, <laughs> when we see someone who's addicted to heroin mm-hmm. and we see them nodding out or we see them, you know, we, we know how their lives get wrecked and they have to steal and... Do all kind of, and it's it's so socially unacceptable. But we 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 have an idea of how powerful that addiction is, and actually alcohol is the same. So it's it's unfortunately uh, viewed in many circles as a moral issue, you know. And also families they they ride the alcoholic, and you just. You know, just don't drink so much and, you know, what are you doing? And they try to control it. And that's the number one lesson is that only the alcoholic can really stop themselves from drinking if they seek help. But 
we think they actually have a choice. And you don't and feel they really that they don't do. until they hit bottom. And mm. it's when they can't take their lives anymore that they will go get help. Such a sad commentary on... It, I guess the goal is to interrupt the slide downward. Although what you're saying is that perhaps you need to let them slide to reach the bottom before they bang their head and realize that they're in trouble. That's that's true. It's absolutely true. And uh, which is which isn't to say that it's it's fine to have an honest conversation with an alcoholic. <clears throat> Um, and to tell them what you see and to tell them what you feel. But to do that repeatedly just does not make sense. It doesn't work. If if concerned family members could stop an alcoholic from drinking, they'd all be stopped. Right. Right? Yes. So, unfortunately, it, it doesn't work, and what you're saying is true. Um, we... Family members do a lot of enable, what we call enabling. Sure. And sometimes we'll call the office and we'll make an excuse or we'll call relatives and make an excuse why so-and-so can't show up. Um, but the truth is that the more they are left to face the consequences of their actions, the sooner they will have to deal with with what they're doing to themselves and to the people around them. But of it, course, it, that's it is for that reason called a family disease. Right. And um, there used to be a, a public service kind of, because Al-Anon is a, a program that um, uh, is, is mostly spread by word of mouth, but there used to be a, a, an advertisement where two people were, at, were arguing, and there was a young person sitting at the top of the stairs listening to this argument, and the narrator said, you can see what it's doing to them, but can you see what it's doing to you? Because mm. right. it's so disruptive and destructive to family life. It is interesting that you were saying that it's uh, inherited, I mean, that there is a genetic trait. Um, and, of course, you know, I was thinking of um, Irish population, mm-hmm. which has a very strong drinking tradition and Scots and, and Russians. Mm-hmm. Um, and right. It, it, it's really, uh, it's interesting because... If it's accepted in the culture and even encouraged, starting, you know, sometimes children get their first drink from their parents at, at even pretty early ages. And if it's, if it's in the culture of their group, then you would want, and wanting to be part of that group and part of your own culture there would be a tendency to start drinking or to start using mm-hmm. alcohol. And then it, it must be very challenging for someone who realizes that it's a problem, even though 
the culture that they live in says that it's okay? And how do you make that move to separate from? I mean, I, I was working with a client who told me that most of her social interactions growing up were connected with alcohol in one way or another, and that she realized that most of her friends, she's in her 50s, that she um, would be, go out drinking with them, and she had made a decision to stop drinking mm-hmm. and realized that going out socially with these friends, the reactions that she had from them really became a challenge to herself in terms of this is not what I want to be doing for myself, but also not wanting to lose her friends. I mean, someone who stops drinking in a drinking group then becomes like a pariah almost. And it, it I think what happens is it sets up the dynamic of, well, she must be judgmental of, of towards me. She must think that I'm, I don't know what the people, you know, someone who continues to drink um, but sees someone has stopped. It, they keep trying to pull the non-drinker back into the fold in a way. And that, it, the, mm-hmm. the psychological pull of it is so strong. And I think what you said before, that the fact that it's legal puts mm-hmm. it in a different category than other substances, you know, drugs. Um, you said you were talking about heroin, but, you know, pills and, and even pills, they're prescription and people take them. But I think if we just stick to the alcohol, because it is, it feels more unique because it's so prevalent everywhere. It You know, mm-hmm. you go to a party, you know, you go to a, a wedding, even you know, anything. It's like they're toasting with alcohol. I mean, I just went to a, like, um, a bridal shower the other day and, and, you know, everyone was having champagne and I was really pleased that they offered orange juice so that, Mm -hmm. to, you know, recognizing that not everybody drinks. Right. But I think it's, it's an, an alertness and awareness of what the norm is and, how to sort of step away from what is perhaps the given, you know, that there's something, it's like, oh, yeah, we go to a party and open bar and terrific and we can drink as much as we want. But stepping away from that is, for many people, a challenge. I mean, it's not for me because I have absolutely no tolerance. (laughs) I mean, I'm, but, right. I have no tolerance, so there isn't even an issue. But if you put something else in front of me, like a bag of Doritos, you know, that would be a problem. Right. So you can imagine if if just when you drank, you felt great. Yes. I, I can imagine. I mean, it is a right. lubricant for a reason. It does make people feel better for a right. period of time. In the beginning. Right. And if, you, you know, there are so obviously social drinkers, and they can drink, you know, but in AA they say that it's your first drink that gets you drunk. Right. Because you can't control it. But and um, I've known young people to come from alcoholic families. I knew a man whose um, 
father and brother and all of his uncles, and I'm sure there were some aunts in there too, mm-hmm. who were all alcoholics. So he, and he was aware of it, and he was involved with a church group, and someone suggested to him, one of the ministers, I guess, suggested to him that he shouldn't drink. It's he, it's too risky. Mm. And, and he, he never drink? drank. He never drank. I... Well, I mean, my late husband was uh, Irish Catholic, and he was very aware of the negative effects of alcohol in his family. And I guess I was afraid for my my own daughter, you know, as Mm -hmm. to what, you know, what would happen when she, you know, went to college or, you know, was with friends, because... To me, there was a predisposition, and it was a a real worry. But, I mean, and I would talk to her about it. And fortunately, Mm -hmm. she heard me and was very respectful of the history, the family Mm -hmm. history, and chose not to go that route. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, she certainly drank in college, but it wasn't in the way that, would cause her functional uh, disruption. Right. And part of the um, inheritance is not only genetic, it's it's also psychological and mm-hmm. emotional because um, the alcoholic over time starts to feel so bad about themselves that they project that onto the people around them. They start to feel very guilty because they know they're messing up all, all in all walks of life. And they, um, so, you know, as I mentioned before, there's a lot of blame that goes on. And they start to, you know, and this is a generalization, and some alcoholics are sicker than others, but what's a very common occurrence is that they will start to put people down mm. so that they, because they're trying to be better than, you know, feel that there's some they have something better than somebody else because they really do have such low self-esteem. And so, therefore, that low self-esteem gets passed on to the spouse, to the children, to whomever. And um, so, so then that becomes one of the things that people medicate themselves because they feel so bad about themselves. So, you see, it's that generational, vicious system. Right. Um, it's yeah. passing along the... Well, I mean, when we look at all parents and and relationships, parent and child relationships, that the way our parents or the caregivers in our life manage stress and uh, tension and uh, emotions of any kind, you know, mm-hmm. feeling good, feeling bad, that if we see that every every reason, every every um, event in their life is connected with celebrating or taking alcohol to feel good, to feel better, to to celebrate, to 
Right. They say uh, alcoholic drinks when they feel happy, when right. they feel sad. <laughs> right. It doesn't matter. Right. There will always be a reason to drink. So we have some thoughts on, on the fact that AA, uh, um, Alcoholic Anonymous, and Al-Anon are two free anonymous services, which most people do know about. And, you know, I've had clients say, um, you know, I didn't like that AA program. It, it really wasn't for me. And what I've discovered is that there are many, each meeting has a different texture, a different mm-hmm. um, dynamic, and that right. sometimes you have to try out a few different groups to find Absolutely. one that really fits for you. Mm-hmm. And I think so not to give up, you know, if, if you're finding that you want support, need support, uh, that going to different groups, you know, is a Yes, a that's useful. a very good point, and it's very true. And usually at any beginner's meeting, it will be suggested that you try at least six meetings because all of the meetings are different. Six different meetings. Six different meetings right. until you determine whether or not Al-Anon is for you. So you're saying Al-Anon, I'm so also saying about... Also uh, AA, yes. Right, that is different, mm-hmm. a different arrangement. Um, you know, I'm thinking, you know, of course, being a therapist and you being a coach, we're often looking for ways multiple ways of helping somebody through difficult times and to resolve and address issues that might have gotten them started or may prevent them from stopping. So are there there different um, directions that you would direct somebody to... um, who is struggling with alcoholism and says, you know, AA is not for me. I, it's not for me. I'm not into groups. I don't like meetings. I don't have time. All those, of course, are excuses. But what if someone says, I just, I can't imagine going to a group and talking and burying my soul, even though it's anonymous. I can't do it. I, I won't do it. I need right. to go well, somewhere Well, what they else. say in AA is bring your body and your mind will follow. <laughs> So really, you know, and they, the other thing they say is you have to reach for AA like a drowning man reaching for a life preserver mm. because that's what it is. It, alcoholism is a fatal disease. It is. It's fatal. Sure. Its primary victim is the alcoholic, and its secondary victims are the people around the alcoholic. And it, it's potentially fatal for everyone. Uh, so it really is a matter of life or death. So you, if you're, if you, you know, as we said, if you really have to reach some kind of a bottom, in in most cases, now some young people have a what we call a high bottom. Mm. They don't have to lose everything and everybody mm-hmm. before they decide they need to get sober. Um, but some people will go all the way down. They will lose everything. And um, so it really is, it, like you said, it's th- those, the, those uh, 
criticisms that they offer are just excuses because if your life is at stake, even if you don't like the taste of the medicine, you take it. Hmm. And you can go to a meeting. You don't have to talk. You can sit there until for a year or for five years. You know, I think the sooner one can engage, the better, but you might just talk to people at a break or after the meeting or walking to your car, but um, you just go. And and there are other there are programs in hospitals. There are wonderful rehabs, um, and very very often people need to go away, right? And, and to a month, you know, a two week or a four week program where they are immersed in the help that they need. But it also helps to be away because they are out of their normal environment. They're not in the immediate can reach for, um, right, and going to the local um, liquor store. I mean, it takes them out of their familiar, and it, mm-hmm. I and think their it, triggers and their triggers. And I think that that also helps them to helps one to look around and see the person in the mirror because. Mm-hmm if you're separated from what's familiar and that you've been glossing over or or um, ignoring mm-hmm. what's in front of you, that that really is an opportunity to do that. Um, right, and you're with people who have been through it. Right. And that's the beauty of both programs. They know, really what we say in Al-Anon is, now is the time to stop talking to family and best friends who know nothing about the disease of alcoholism. But in Al-Anon, everybody knows it. Mm. Even if the details of the story are different, it's basically the same, the same um, syndrome, the same um, kinds of hurt and damage that that this disease causes. So so people already know and they we know even, you know, as the as the fog starts to clear for you, it's already cleared for us. And we know what you're going through. And when and same with an alcoholic going to a program, they've been through it. And they know it takes time. It really takes time after an alcoholic stops drinking to gain clarity, as you say, awareness, um, to even have any idea, really, of, of what's going on. So, so that's very important for the family to realize, is that there's a big difference between being dry and sober. Yes. Right? So even when someone just stops drinking, they're dry, but they're not sober. Right. Their thinking isn't clear. We also say that their maturing stops while they're drinking. So in many ways, they are the age they were when they started drinking. So they have a lot of catching up to do. And it's important for the family to lower their expectations they're not, you know, let's say he's a 35-year-old or a 40-year-old. Whatever age 
whatever's chronological ages and his responsibilities that go along with that, children, work. But he's, in most cases, not really ready, he or she. Mm -hmm. And so we have to know that we can't expect them to now just be ready, set, a mature, whatever age they are. So, Deb, maybe we can, I'm talking to Debbie Kearns, and, you know, I was thinking that perhaps we can talk about how to help parents direct their children into other areas of, not just socially acceptable, but to uh, finding ways of being social and engaged in their world and their life without perhaps starting using alcohol. I mean, I'm not sure that that's always possible, but I'm wondering like the kind of a conversation that a parent could have with their child to alert them of the issues, the problems, without being just one big lecture, but to really offer situations and their concerns so that the child would have the opportunity to make different choices? Mm-hmm. Well, I think it's um, very appropriate, especially where there is a history of alcoholism in the family. Uh, so, um, you know, so many, you, you'll come across so many adults who are adult children of alcoholics who very often they don't even uh, know that their parent, one of their parents or both were alcoholics. The denial can be that powerful. But then in talking, you'll, you'll say to them, you know, that's not normal. The meaning of falling down on the ground or being unable to walk up the stairs or... Or the raging. Right, and the knowing that you have to figure out, is this a good day or a bad day when my parent comes home? Um, That's right. They have to do a lot of uh, body language and... uh, Reading. I mean, that's one of the reasons why children of alcoholics have such a hard time because their childhood is uh, thwart with behaviors that they see as normal for their home, but are not normal in in terms of healthy family functioning. Right. That's exactly right. But it feels like home to them. It is home. Right, it is home. But it is still scary. I mean, I think that that's one of the things that children of alcoholics do realize of how frightening their early life was and how that the people who are supposed to be protecting them are not, and if not even right. hurting them. Right, and are disappointing them, not showing up, um, and giving, you know, and telling lies. Um, alcoholism lies all the time, part of that cover up. You know, so that they can keep drinking, keep it going. So I think it's what do they very say to themselves? What, Sorry? What, what are they saying to themselves, you know, when they're lying to themselves? Like, I'm not drinking too much, I can handle it, that kind of stuff? They do that. 
and they make excuses for why they're late, mm-hmm. why they don't come home for dinner, mm-hmm. why they don't come home at all, why they um, spent their paycheck, because it's very expensive to mm-hmm. drink in bars, which is where most people like to drink. Men do most um, in bars. Or don't women drink to, at home? Sorry? Don't women drink at home and men drink in bars? Uh, that may be total generalization on my part, but um, that um, I, you know, that may be a true generalization with a lot of crossover. <laughs> right. Uh, I know that if um, sometimes, um, it, it, and I think it has to do with also. Well, it, it's um, it may have to do with. For example, the man that I was with, mm-hmm. he didn't have a regular job. Mm-hmm. So, and he was very often, he'd make up stories, lies to his parents to get money from them. Mm. And there's an alcoholic usually never has enough money. Huh. It's just, just like the way a drug it addict. Is. Yeah. And because it, it's expensive, it's especially expensive to drink in bars. They don't mm-hmm. like to drink alone. Mm hmm. Um, or, you know, some people drink alone at home, but I think most don't, which is why there are so many bars. <laughs> uh, but re- regardless, everyone has their system. Mm. And it, what began to happen in my situation was he would start a fight so he could get angry and mm. feel justified to go out drinking. in going out and drinking. Mm-hmm. And it was your fault. And that began to happen daily. Mm. And the terrible part of it is that you, as a partner to this, you start to feel, what did I do wrong? Mm -hmm. Why can't I make them happy? I try so hard, and they loved me before. Why don't they love me now? So distortions begin. <clears throat> you take it. They, you begin to take it personally, and sure. it's not personal. No matter what they say, they don't drink because of you or anybody else. And that's one of the most important things to learn. But I think what ha- what you're saying is that the the distortions and the denial that they are operating. Uh, within their own head, gets projected out. That's right. And as it gets projected out, the distortions, you know, depending on who you are and what kind of connection you have in relationships, how centered, grounded you are, you can begin to take that in and make it part of who you are, even though it's a completely distorted Image. It's their self-image, kind of layered on top of you. Mm-hmm. That's exactly right. That's what happens. And so, when I mentioned before the damage that's done, mm. that's the damage, mm-hmm. and it builds over time until um, until we really we have to. Those of us who are affected by someone else's drinking have to reach out so we can repair that damage. Because what what you find when you go to a group, 
And again, you don't have to say anything. You can just sit there and listen. But what you find is people who are not judging each other, who are not critical of each other. It, it, whatever has happened, they are not going to judge you for it. And that's really the opposite of the experience of the alcoholic family. Mm. So that's where the healing begins. And then there are wonderful tools um, for example, one day at a time. Because by the time we get to Al-Anon, our lives have become unmanageable. Nobody walks in that walks through those doors the first day their partner or their relative has started drinking. So um, one day at a time is sometimes all we can manage. We can't. We, we by then have so many problems, but we can't solve them all at once. But we can do something for one day. Mm. And we can try to make it better for one day in whatever small way we can. And we also learn to not take personally what the alcoholic says. We might even start to tune them out because it is a form of insanity that takes over when someone's been drinking, and that's why it's that's part of the illness. Um, so we we do have to learn. We and it takes time because they've got your name and they they know your buttons. So it's a it's a process. But once somebody gets help, they're in that process of recovery, and um, and they get better. We we say that which is hard to believe for anybody who's very involved with an alcoholic, but the promise is that you will learn to find happiness whether the alcoholic is drinking or not. That you because as a partner or you as a family member? Either way, that you begin to put all the energy that you've been putting into either pleasing the alcoholic, trying to make them happy, trying to get them to stop drinking, pour the alcohol down the sink, mm. take them out of the bar, whatever we've been doing before that fails. Mm -hmm. It's not because we didn't do it well enough. It's because it wasn't possible in the first place. Right. But, you can't so control their behavior as in every right. situation. We cannot control other people's behavior. We can only control our own reactions to their behavior. Uh, we can control our reactions to it, and we can control what we do with our attention mm -hmm. and our energy. Mm -hmm. So we learn to put the focus on ourselves and take all that energy and think of, okay, what can I do to make my life better? I can't fix him or her, but what, but what do I need now? Mm -hmm. What's going to help me? What, what do I need to be happy? I had to ask myself, what used to make me happy? Right. Oh, wow. To remember and to get back to my life and to be able to let go of the alcoholic, sometimes even just for a minute or an hour, because it's, you know, we get into habits of behavior. So it takes time, but it can be done and it's worth it. How long did it take you to recognize that this was not the relationship that you wanted for yourself? Well, it really didn't 
And so how long did it take? It took about five years. It's a long time. Yeah. A very long time. Because it's progressive. Sure. And we were young. Mm -hmm. And as the disease progressed, you see, I knew nothing. I knew absolutely nothing. And I believed everything he said. Mm. So little by little, I started to think, well, gee, I guess I'm not really lovable. Mm. I guess I'm. I guess what he says about me is true because it's like brainwashing. Yes. You hear it over and over, and you start to believe it. Mm. And and he was always saying how great he was, <laughs> you know. And he was so much smarter and better and more creative and talented. And and he was a lot of those things, but it was a lot of bravado, and it was um, again, it was a lot of subterfuge. And he was like and stepping so, on. But I had no idea what was going on. He was like stepping on your shoulders. I'm sorry. It was like he was stepping on your shoulders, you know, to engrandize himself and oh, pushing yeah. you down. Yes, that's that's what happens. And that's quite a journey. Um, I, I think. If we've gained, we're actually coming to the end of the show. Mm -hmm. um, but I think what's, what's so important is to recognize that, I think what we said before is that we cannot fix an alcoholic and we cannot fix someone who's using drugs. We can't fix them. What right. we can do is to look at and react in a way that is, um, serves ourselves mm -hmm. and takes care of ourselves so that they can begin to heal or not, but mm -hmm. that's their choice. We always have a choice as to whether or not we are going to stay or leave. And that's an important message for ourselves is that we need to do what we need to do for ourselves so that we can be the best we can be. Right. And we actually recommend to people when they first come in that they not make any major decisions for their first six months unless they're in danger. Physical danger or emotional. Physical, well, it, emotional right, is, either one. Mm -hmm. You know, unless they're in, unless it's very, very severe. Mm -hmm. But And the only reason we say that is because they don't. They often don't have the strength or the resources. Mm -hmm. uh, they, they, they don't have the preparation to make that kind of move. And very often, someone will make it and will come back because they haven't had the support that they needed. And in in um, in Al-Anon, you get the support. And you're much, by six months, you're already stronger. You have friends, you have support, you have phone numbers, yeah. you can call anytime, you have meetings, you have literature, you have all those things Dan, to help you move That is move fabulous forward. and important information. And we do have to wrap up. This is Deb Kearns. She has been very informative um, and positive in how to address and handle alcoholism for yourself and for others. So I wanted to thank you so much for being on the show today. It's been a true pleasure. It's been a pleasure, Lynn. Thank you for having me. You're so welcome. Uh, this is Lynn Macron-Mara on City World Radio.
The show is Better Days, A Positive Approach to Life. May you all have a wonderful and positive week. Take care. AMVETS members volunteer millions of hours at VA health care facilities from coast to coast, helping to improve the lives of their fellow veterans through the VA Voluntary Services Program. AMVETS posts and departments also participate in a wide variety of community service projects, ranging from Americanism in our schools to supporting the Special Olympics and Boy Scouts of America. If you no longer wear the uniform today, you can still serve through the AMVETS by joining today at AMVETS.org. Hi, I'm Janice Ian. Do you remember how excited you were at the start of summer every year and how the summer just started to drag on after a few months and you couldn't wait to get back to school, see your old friends, make new friends, get new books and a new locker and a clean slate? Well, you should have been excited about music class, too, because that was a special room where you went to sing, perform with your friends, and learn all kinds of interesting stuff about great composers, instruments, different kinds of music and songs. We remember our music teachers because they were so passionate about helping us learn to love music. They helped to spark a love for listening to notes and voices and rhythms that continues to enrich our lives even today. I bet your kids feel the same way about music class. Ask them. And make sure they get involved with music in school and in their lives. A PSA brought to you by MENC, the National Association for Music Education, and the National Anthem Project, the campaign to restore America's voice through music education. Music.